Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tegos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays, when we sit down with Smart Karma insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. If you like what we do, consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast app, as this really helps more people discover the show. Thank you for being with us, and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to another webinar by Smart Karma. I'm Michael Tegos. Today, I'm excited to welcome Lucror Analytics, who will go over uh, high yield and crossover opportunities in India and Indonesia. Lucro Analytics was established in 2010 in Singapore to meticulously and methodically scrutinize the opportunities and risks inherent in high yield investing. Since 2010, Lucror has been entrusted as a reliable research partner by the largest and most reputable participants in the high yield segment, including asset managers, family offices, hedge funds, investment, and private banks, who recognize the value and distinct advantage that independent research imparts to their investment and risk management decisions. With me today are Charles McGregor, Head of Asia for Lucro Analytics, and analysts Trung Nguyen and Leonard Law. Gentlemen, welcome to the webinar. Thank you very much for being with us today. The floor is yours. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, everybody, for joining us on this webinar today. Uh, what we'd like to do is a bunch of stuff. First off, we just wanted to briefly touch on some recent initiatives at Lucro Analytics uh, that may or may not be of interest, but it's certainly something that we've devoted a lot of time and energy into. Uh, talk about the, the current investment environment, not very pretty. We will also be providing slides with our complete Indonesia and India coverage and also a number of relative value charts that you can all peruse at your leisure later. We will then follow that up with five case studies, Adani Ports, Medco Energy, Greenco, Indica Energy, and Vedanta Resources. Quite a heavy focus on resources and energy there. So let's get started. This year in the, the Asian team, our, our focus has shifted slightly from being pure high yield to now encompassing some crossover credits, uh, triple B space, triple B minus space. So we'll be reducing the coverage of some of the lower rated names, triple C, B minus. Uh, we, we're obviously losing some of the Chinese property name, defaulted, prospect of restructuring in the near term. It's our intention to pick up our coverage from around about 100 names to 120 names across not just Southeast Asia, but we're hopeful to pick up a number of South Korean names as well, possibly some Taiwanese and Hong Kong names there too. New names that we've already added to the portfolio may be quite familiar to a number of you, Barat Petroleum, Barty Airtel, Pertamina, Parisahan Gus, and UPL. A number of those are quite large issues, so we're expecting there to be some interest in, in those names. The second thing I just wanted to briefly touch upon is that we launched our ESG module in the first quarter of this year. We've now increased our global coverage to around about 350 names. And of those 350, 90 are in Asia, but we will be increasing that to hopefully encompass all of the names that we, we cover in Asia. We like to think that our approach to ESGs is one that really does think about the concept of materiality of different factors. And in that regard, 
how we slice and dice it for each industry is that we go through each industry and we look at the factors that we think are appropriate for that industry and then we apply a weighting to those factors as to how they uh, impact upon the quantitative score. So we, we have both a quantitative, as I've just mentioned, and also a qualitative overlay where the analysts, so we've got an ESG team that does the quantitative part of it, and the credit analysts, Oak Chung, Leonard, myself, will look at that and also talk about some things that are a little bit more qualitative, can't be scored easily, such as quality of management as far as you know what their track record has been like, how good they are on governance, if there's any sort of flaws in their past that we think sort of weigh heavily on the overall score. And then lastly, we look at any controversies that could impact and that could be, I don't know, it could be a pollution problem where they polluted the water table or it could be a social problem with, um, using slave labour or at least indentured labour. So that, those sorts of issues are some what we think about in that regard. Okay, if we look at what's been happening over the last six to 12 months, uh, generally in EM it has not been pretty. Obviously, a portion of that is related to the downfall in the Chinese property sector, and so that's weighed quite heavily on the Asia overall performance. Uh, but to also to a certain degree, um, performance across the board has been impacted by uh, the rising treasury yields, which are up to about four or five year highs now. What I'd like to just sort of emphasize here that if you look at the India and Indonesian returns or lack thereof, they're much smaller than for the rest of the EN. We believe that if you took out a couple of outliers there, for instance, in India, if we, we took out, say, JSW Steel and New Power, the returns would be positive. Likewise, for Indonesia, if we took APL, uh, Agung, Potomoro Land, or Chababika, once again, we, we see the returns as being positive. So there's a couple of outliers in each of those um, countries that have um, impacted upon the return. It hasn't been really a sort of a, a systematic downfall. At this juncture, I will now, uh, just sorry, quickly, um, we've provided the list of the, uh, the, the names under our coverage at, at presently with the trade recommendation. Um, perception of the credit and the ESG score. And we've also provided some relative value charts. You can look at, say, for instance, there's the Indonesian curve down the bottom, and um, obviously pretty close to that are names like Pertamina, an outlier in Cyclus there, which has less relationship with the government than a lot of the names in there. Likewise, in high yield, you can see one name that we're going to talk about later is Medco Energy going through there. We do the same thing for India and provide some RV charts for you later to look at. At this juncture, I might pass over to Leonard to tell us all about Adani Ports. Thank you, Leonard. Okay, thanks, Charles. Um, so moving on, uh, we discuss five credits, starting with Adani Ports. So Adani Ports, uh, short form APSEZ, is India's largest independent port developer and operator, accounting for 28% of all Indian cargo traffic. Besides ports, the company also has minor but related businesses in logistics, SEZ land management, and operations and maintenance. So the ports business is typically stable and generates positive free cash flows. Moreover, uh, APSEZ's ports handle a variety of cargo, which helps to reduce the company's exposure to a slowdown in transport demand for any particular commodity. 
Over the past two to three years, APSEZ has carried out a number of acquisitions to expand the port and logistics businesses. We believe the company could still pursue more acquisitions to grow its scale. As management has stated aims to further grow the company's cargo throughput by 2025. And such further new acquisitions will likely keep the company's net debt to EBITDA elevated at about three to four times. At the same time, we also expect management to carefully manage the pace of acquisitions as well as the funding mix to keep leverage within the rating agency's downgrade triggers. Hence, uh, we think the company would be likely to maintain their IG ratings over the near term. On the ESG front, we assess APSEZ's ESG as adequate. We have given the company a strong score for environmental, supported by robust data availability and clear targets for improving various environmental indicators. That said, the social score is weak, mainly due to a lack of targets for most metrics and also a poor score for workplace safety. Governance is adequate, uh, though the exact score is actually bordering towards weak. Uh, the company is effectively controlled by the Adani family. And plus, we also consider that the shareholders have a history of pledging their shares and also a history of related party transactions. So overall, the impact from ESG on the company's credit profile is moderately negative. This is mainly due to controversies, uh, mainly arising from the company's investment in Myanmar, where the military has been subjected to various allegations of human rights abuses. So we view that this controversy has a material reputation impact, as well as a moderate financial impact due to weaker access to funding from ESG-conscious investors. So to sum it up, our credit bias on APSEZ is stable, and the bonds are currently yielding above its triple B minus peers, which we believe is due to concerns over the company's acquisition appetite and ESG issues. That said, uh, the company has plans to exit from its Myanmar investment, during the recent earnings call, uh, management did say that they have signed an agreement to sell the Myanmar asset at a price that will enable them to recover their investment. So we believe this should uh, help solve their ESG issues. Hence, uh, we have a buy recommendation on the Adani notes as we believe that the yields are attractive. Uh, okay, so that's all for Adani. We move on to our second case study, Metco. Metco is primarily an independent oil and gas ENP company in Indonesia. Uh, besides oil and gas, it also has a power generation subsidiary and a copper and gold mining JV. So the company has reported strong results with robust earnings growth supported by higher oil prices. And as a result, the management has set a lower net leverage target of 2.5 times, down from three times previously. So in our view, the company has good near-term prospects given the high oil price environment. That said, over the medium term, the credit profile will continue to hinge on the outlook for oil prices. In particular, we would like to highlight several key risks for this company. Uh, chief of all would be its small scale and very low reserve life. Uh, Metco's 2P reserves are estimated at seven years, while 1P reserves are only about five years. 
So because of these small reserves, the company will have to continually invest in exploratory capex or embark on more acquisitions. Such activities will not only keep leverage elevated, but also expose it to event risk from the acquisitions. So on the ESG front, our overall ESG assessment is adequate, but also bordering on weak. So as Charles mentioned earlier, our ESG score is based on a materiality matrix and it considers different factors and weightages for each industry. So for Metco, the environmental pillar has the highest weightage given the nature of the industry. And our score for Metco's environmental and social pillars are adequate. Governance is weak, mainly due to control by the Panigoro family and high family representation on the board. We also considered the company's history of debt-funded expansion as well as ongoing related party transactions. Positively, Metco has not been the subject of any material ESG controversy. Although the company is in a fossil fuel industry, the business is actually more towards natural gas rather than crude oil. So overall, uh, we view that ESG issues have a neutral impact on Metco's credit profile. Okay, to sum it up, our credit bias on Metco is stable. Although the near-term prospects are good, uh, we actually just have a whole recommendation on the bonds. Uh, mainly, we remain cautious of, of the key risks that we have highlighted. And in particular, we prefer the shorter end of the bond curve, that is the 25 and 26. And we would avoid the longer dated bonds, given the risk arising from its low reserve life. Uh, that's all from me. I would like to hand it over to Trong to discuss his credits. Thank you, Lynette. In India, we have Green Co, which is um, a leading independent owner and operator of clean energy projects. The company has a diversified renewable energy portfolio, which comprises of about 3.2 gigawatt of wind power, 1.5 gigawatt of solar, and 1.8 gigawatt of hydropower. We like the company's robust business, uh, business profile with contractual cash flow, very stable power generation, it has a fixed long-term tariff of about 25 years, and the company has minimal operating costs, which translate to very high and stable EBITDA margin. It has very strong support from shareholders, which include GIC, 57%, and Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, 14%. The company has equity commitment from the shareholders to help it uh, expand its portfolio. The bond due 2028 are currently trading at 82, yielding 8.7%, which we thought is very attractive for such a relatively highly rated within the higher space in India. From the ESG perspective, our assessment is adequate. In terms of environmental pillar, it is strong as expected for such a renewable independent producer. Social and governance pillars are adequate. Disclosure is strong. The company is free from controversies. Overall, we find that ESG issue have a moderate impact on the company given the focus on renewable energy. This will help the company have better access to capital, especially from the ESG-conscious investors. Our credit bias is stable, mainly due to the contractual cash flow. 
minimal operating costs and the strong support from the shareholders. Next, let's move on to Indonesia. We have Indica Energy. It is a holding com energy company with operations spanning the energy supply chain, but with a strong focus on coal mining at the moment. The key asset is a 91% in Kideco, which is Indonesia's third largest coal miner. Its production cost is very low at only $33 per tonne as of Q1. And as you can tell, the coal prices are very high at the moment. The company has zero net debt. Last 12 month EBITDA of a billion dollars, free cash flow of $700 million. And its debt is only $1.5 billion. Debt over EBITDA, it's 1.4 times and is expected to hit about one time this year. The company has commendable effort to improve its ESG. It targets 50% of non-coal revenue by 2025. And it's doing that by acquiring other commodities, by selling non-coal coal-related businesses, for example, petrol seas, a logistic business, a coal logistic business. It has a JV to produce electric two-wheel vehicle. From the ESG perspective, Due to the nature of the business, the environmental and social pillars are weak. There's the social pillar, uh, we, the workplace safety is acceptable. However, the, the diversity of the workplace is negative as uh, it has very few uh, women um, in the business. The governance pillar, however, is adequate but strongly positioned due to the management team is good. The setup of the board is good. It has a track record of leading Indica through challenging period without resorting to any creditor unfriendly actions. It has actively managed its debt maturity profile well. And um, that's, that's why we like it. The controversies are immaterial. Overall, our credit bias is positive due to the strong rally in coal price this year and the company's commitment to improve its business diversification and ESG standard. Our trade recommendation is to buy the longer dated. The company has two bonds, one due in 2024 and one due in 2025. We like the 25 because it's longer dated, it's yielding higher, and we believe that the company can easily pay off all of its debt, not just the 24, because this company has zero net debt. Let's move on. Back to India, we have Vedanta Resources. This is a diversified commodities producer in India. While most of its assets in India, the company also has some mines in Australia, small zinc asset in Nambia and in other parts of the world. It has very strong, very low production costs. For example, for zinc, its production cost is only one. 1,150 uh, per ton, whereas zinc prices is almost 3,500 per ton now. Its production cost for oil is only $11 per barrel, which is like one-tenth of the oil price at the moment. Its production cost for aluminum is between 1,500 to 1,800 per ton. The, the leverage is moderate. That EBITDA is 2.6 times and net debt EBITDA is only 1.9 times. Now, however, the notes of the Vedanta notes has been weighed down by the refinancing risk 
which we thought is overblown. It has about USD $4 billion maturing each year for the next three years, uh, of which $3 billion is at the whole goal. Now, however, the company is generating over $6 billion of EBITDA a year. And this year, the consensus is also for it to generate $6.6 billion of EBITDA. It is improving its corporate structure, improving its cash upstream ability. It has set up clear dividend policies to upstream its cash. It actually has strong access to capital as seen in earlier this month where the company has managed to get a $1 billion term loan by pledging 5.7% of its Hindustan Zing uh, up as securities. And the company owned 65% of Hindustan Zing. In ESG, our assessment is adequate. It has adequate score across environmental, social, and governance. Disclosure is strong. In terms of controversy, there is some controversy, especially in terms of pollution, for example. One of its copper mines, the like Copper, has been um, shut down four years ago due to protests over pollution. However, we do not find that the controversies are weighing on the credit profile. At the moment, it's mainly the refinancing risk. Our credit bias is positive given the strong earnings and improving corporate structure. Our trade recommendation is to by the long, longest dated note, which is the 26, because it's trading at the lowest price and highest yield at $84, yielding 19%. That's all for me. Thank you, Chun. Thank you very much, gentlemen, uh, for this thorough presentation. As we see if there are any questions uh, from uh, attendees, perhaps um, team, I was wondering which of the names in your coverage you would consider the greatest risk. So you, you talked about uh, them in uh, uh, quite a bit of detail. So if you had to isolate one or two, which would, be, would it be? As far as our overall coverage, India seems to be relatively okay. At the moment. I believe Vedanta Limited. Vedanta is, has is, the highest is, risk. It's the but, highest risk. But... Yeah, the risk, the, the risk is... I believe it's, it's compensated by the highest yield. It's, ni it's okay. 19% compared to the rest of the notes are trading at probably if, high if just, single digit. Yeah, if we just put that aside for the moment, the yield, if we just look at the, the credit profile, it's the refinancing risk that weighs on that one, um, with, as Chung outlined. Quite a, a moderate uh, repayment schedule over the next couple of years. If we look at Indonesia, that's probably a very different story. The highest risk there would be Agung, Potamora land. Uh, Chung, where are they up to these days? Yeah, they're trading at, um, you know, at I think 40 cents on a dollar due right. to the um, refinancing risk. Uh, okay. And Leonard, we've also got uh, Suet Sambamas at very high risk. Uh, what's the quick story there? Yes, uh, that's a palm oil upstream company. Uh, we had a not recommended call on the notes since the first day of issuance. And it has always remained as very high risk, uh, mainly due to corporate governance issues. The company is opaque. Uh, they had a CFO restructure and they have material related party transactions. So because of these reasons, we actually had not recommended on them 
since day one. Okay. And if we look at the high risk names, what about somebody like Gajatungal? Are they exposed to a downturn in activity? Economic, there's an economic downturn? Um, yes, they are exposed to depreciation of the rupiah. Yep. Uh, given that they do not hedge their cost and most of their costs are in USD. Yes. We have a hold on Gajatungal for now because the bonds are in due in 2026. So near-term refinancing risk is low here. But uh, I think this is still high risk and the company would face refinancing risk in future when the bonds come due. Okay, thanks. And what's the story of Jabba Beaker, Chung? They've got that refinancing risk in, uh, when is it, October, September next year? Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, a, it's like the majority of their debt. Yes, 90, 90, 95% of, the, of their debt. And the company uh, doesn't generate enough cash to, to pay, uh, as, as expected, of a high-yield high yield company. And so they're heavily, uh, yeah. de heavily dependent on accessing um, finance from yes. the banking market. It, do, it, doesn't have, it doesn't have good banking relationship. In the past, yeah. this company has always been generating free cash flow and it has not uh, been uh, obtaining any, um, any credit line with the bank. So it doesn't have good banking relationship. In this market, it would be a big challenge to refinance that note. Okay. And then we, we have two other high-risk ones, ABM, Investama, and Saka Energy. But uh, Leonard, I think they're sort of, um, the flight path, they're slightly different. For Saka Energy, um, yeah, they are actually uh, owned by an SOE, Perusahan Gas. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Saka is likely to repay the bonds, to refinance the bonds, supported by uh, parent support. Okay, so yeah, that one's on, uh, it's on an upward trend, that one. Yeah. And likewise with ABM this time, the uh, contractor? Um, yes. Oh, ABN being a contractor, it doesn't benefit. Uh, it doesn't benefit from the um, high co-price. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's it, Michael. It's you know, there's a, there's a couple of names there that we're we're looking at relatively closely. Understood. Thank you very much for that. When it comes to ESG considerations, uh, that uh, as you mentioned uh, at the start, and of course throughout the presentation, um, have you found that they materially affect your view on specific companies, um, or are they sort of? simply confirming um, initial assessments based on uh, more traditional factors? I'll, look, I'll, I'll give you a general answer to that in that to date, I don't think we've seen anything that's an ESG-related matter that's materially moved the needle on the credit risk profile. Leonard, what's your assessment there? Yeah, probably just the handful, like Adani Ports I mentioned, uh, the ESG impact is moderately negative. But I would say that is just one of a handful of names. Uh, but yeah. as far as sort of really impacting upon the credit risk profile, I mean, we, you know, you've highlighted that there are some controversies there and that we, we view them as being having a negative impact on the profile, but it's a sort of the materiality of that impact is it's yet to be something that's really, as I said, you know, moved the dial. Mm, that's right. Yeah, Charles, I believe in the past we have. Uh, put not recommended 
on a number of companies due to the inadequate governance. That is before we, we start okay, the ESG yeah, so before, before the ESG, so, yeah. So, you know, if a company's got a track record of not paying um, back note holders, we tend to take a dim view of that. Or, um, you know, large related party transactions. There was a, I think it was Chaldar in, in China, which was a company 18 years ago that was buying from a related party and, you know, the, the accounting was just all over the place. So, you know, there, there have been instances like that. Uh, but if we look at just the ES aspect of it, that, that one's still, that's still gestating. We, we have like instances, for example, we, we, we put a not, not recommended on certain company due to inadequate governance. For example, China Hongqiao, do you remember? China XD, yes. XD Plastic. And there's another Indian company which uh, defaulted. Okay, but the, the, the point being is that um, I don't know how you build that into the credit risk profile as sort of, sort of a qualitative overlay where we just say, well, look, it's, um, if we look at credit risk as defined as the, uh, the, the willingness and the ability to repay, and then in, say, Europe or the States, it's generally the ability that people focus on. In Asia, we also focus on the willingness, and that's where the, the governance comes into it, and it's quite important. Absolutely, and it's going to be interesting to see um, how that figures into your coverage going forward as well. Thank you very much, gentlemen. We're just uh, about coming up on time, so I would like to thank you for the thorough presentation um, and thank everyone for attending. If you wish to hear more from the analysts at Lucror, uh, you can follow their profiles on Smart Karma so you don't miss any of the insights that they post. And if you wish to engage Lucror Analytics for bespoke research requests, you can contact your Smart Karma account manager and they will help you out in this regard. If you have any other questions for our speakers, you can always email us at research at smartkarma.com, excuse me, and we will make sure to uh, forward them through. Charles, Trung, Leonard, thank you very much for being with us today. Okay, thank you, Mark. Thank you for organizing this. Thank you, everybody. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please share it with your networks. Subscribe to the podcast feed so you don't miss an episode. And follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening. And see you next time.